Hello and welcome to episode 37 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark and coming up on today's episode, I'm going to be joined by the actor, writer, presenter, comedian, the man of many talents, Brian Blessed. I truly believe that he's one of our national treasures. He's such a character. He's so loud. He's so passionate. He can talk forever. And that's what you want when you're doing a podcast. You don't want guests that don't want to talk. That just doesn't work. And I think he's the complete opposite. He wouldn't mind me saying this. I think we could have done a 10-hour special because this guy just loves to talk. But he doesn't talk rubbish. He talks all about his life. He gives me stories. And it's absolutely awesome as a podcast to have guests like this. So I can't wait to share this with you today. Now, just before we get into today's episode in more detail, what I want to talk about is the last episode. So only a couple of weeks ago, I released the episode with Mads Mikkelsen, one of the best actors right now in the world, one of the most good-looking, handsome chaps in the world. I don't mind admitting that, he's absolutely gorgeous. But I didn't expect such a huge response. I was kind of confident and knew that people would enjoy it, and I knew he's a big name and he has such a big following, but I didn't realise just how big until this episode went live. The Hannibal fans are absolutely unbelievable. The support, the sharing they did on social media. This episode now is by far my most downloaded episode I've ever done. So I just want to say a big thank you to everyone that's listened and all those Hannibal fans and fans of Mads Mikkelsen and all those girls that love him for sharing this episode because I'd never dreamt of the kind of downloads this got. I've had so many more followers come along, I've had more people email me than ever, I've had new iTunes ratings, more people sign up to the Patreon which means I can record more and get more stuff. It's absolutely mind-blowing, so thank you everyone for tuning in. But, let's get back into today's episode. So as I said, I'm going to be joined by Brian Blessed, a huge, huge actor. I love his work, I love Flash Gordon, one of my favourites. But let's just get to it. Let's not talk all about the interview and ruin it. Let's get straight to it now. So here's my interview with me and Brian Blessed. Hello. How are you? I'm very well. It's a lovely day. You and I having to uh, be interviewed on a lovely day on a bank holiday. I'm <laughs> it's far too nice to be inside. It is indeed. How's your day anyway, apart from that? Are you having a nice weekend? Yeah, yes, yes, yes. Wonderful, wonderful. I, I enjoy life immensely. That's good to hear. So thank you for joining me on this lovely sunny day today. Yes, it's a perfect day. I, I always get mixed up between this and Whitsuntide. In my youth, we used to go on drama courses, people like Patrick Stewart and myself, in the Calder Valley, uh, wonderful Calder Valley, Happy Valley on television, it is. But the Calder Valley is incredibly beautiful. Uh, but it was always Whitsuntide. I can never... And this bank holiday Monday, I confuse with Whitsuntide. Whitsuntide's later on, isn't it? Yes, it is. I think, isn't it the 28th or 29th or something like that? I'm not sure. Near the end of the month. Yeah. I would get mixed up. I love this time. It's a lovely awakening. I mean, I'm sitting here in my wooden hut. Uh, it's full of all the novelties and, uh, uh, from my ex- expeditions throughout the world, from Mount Everest to the Ross World. My room's full of it all. Uh, and, and, and an autographed, uh, big, huge photograph from Buzz Aldrin, of, uh, Ian Armstrong, the first man to walk on the moon. And I'm looking out my window and it's just birds uh, in, uh, in my garden all out there feeding away. It's just absolutely magic. I think that... Um, the spring always catches Britain unawares. It suddenly wham, and then you see the strength of it. It doesn't matter how much frost, doesn't matter how much snow. 
uh, those buds are ready to open, you know. And it's it's quite joyful. It's absolutely wonderful to be kind of out there. I'm doing a bit of gardening with a day off. I love gardening. Yeah. I've got a greenhouse full of all kinds of plants. And uh, I, I love gardening. Uh, I've not had television come here, thank God, in the fact that I have an English garden, uh, which is full of all kinds of English plants and woodland trees and bluebells. And then I have a South American garden for my expeditions to the lost world. Uh, with stuff, and then I have a Buddhist garden when I kind of went to Everest and met the Dalai Lama and all that. Uh, so uh, it, it's uh, I love it. Reminds me of all my expeditions, and the dogs all sit out there because I've got lots of animals, and it's absolute peace. Uh, I just love it. I mean, uh, anyway, that's the way I am at the moment. I'll ask me another question, my old son. Of course. So what I wanted to know is, at what age did you want to become an actor? Was it at a very young age, growing up at school? I, I think that actually actors are incredibly boring when they talk about acting. Yeah. And the fact is that um, you've got no choice. Uh, uh, good, bad, or indifferent, you must do it. Acting is a must. Uh, I, I mean, I love, my biggest love in life is space. From being a child, from seeing Dan Dare uh, in the Evil Comics and then Flash Gordon, but ultimately, of course, I made the film. As to see it as a child, uh, I was born in Mexborough, uh, near Rotherham uh, and Goldthorpe, and we used to uh, uh, kind of go and watch the black and white version of Flash Gordon in the village in Goldthorpe. Uh, seven miles from Doncaster. And all the coal miners in the Don and Dern Valley is the war years. This house a war baby. We, um, the coal miners, they could, they could do, my dad could do the whole of Hamlet. He was a coal hewer. 18 tons a day, the hardest work in a coal mine. And he played opening fast bill for Yorkshire the weekends. And all the coal miners would put on operas and musicals and plays as length and breadth of the Don Valley. People like Judy Dench would be playing small parts and Patrick Stewart and all that. So it was a kind of great activity. The war years are amazing. We could hear the German submarines and our, our crystal sets and things like that. We had two Polish pilots living with us uh, uh, were part of the Battle of Britain. Uh, and uh, it was Martin. We had a Russian stay with us. It was absolutely sensational. Uh, and so the very exciting years, uh, I had this very kind of organic, romantic background. But I mean, we, but Patrick and I, I mean, <clears throat> and Keith Barron and people like that, it was impossible. I mean, working class people, uh, Patrick Stewart was the son of a um, milkman, me the son of a Colonel Hewer. Uh, we did wonderful amateur theatre in those early days. Uh, but it was inconceivable that we could go to drama school, working class boys like that. So when we got our scholarship to go to the Bissell Theatre School, I went to Wakefield and I was a secondary school boy and had no qualifications in a GC. Brian, we've been watching a lad. He's going to bloody act. We're giving you a scholarship. And I went to the Bissell Theatre School and met people like Pete too. And so I've always kind of been lucky and looked after. But the amateur theatre in the 19, early 40s and 50s was incredibly powerful in South Yorkshire. And so acting is a must. You've got to do, as I said, my biggest love is space. And I, I would say I'm 60% explorer and 40% actor. So when you were a child, did your parents buy you a telescope or something, or how did that love of space come? We used to make them out of cardboard and things like that. Yeah? And then we'd, we'd make the mirrors 
us ourselves. Uh, and the school encouraged it all the time. We had these great programmes on television with Fred Hoyle, uh, and then on the, on the radio, because there was no television. So the radio you got, actors on the radio were the ones who got the Oscars, you might say, the BAFTAs. And you were brilliant. I mean, they were more brilliant then than now when it comes to radio. They specialised in radio and the special effects. I heard the War of the Worlds in the 1940s on the BBC light programme. It was bloody marvellous. The sound effects. I remember the Martians dying at the end. We were all sitting around this little wooden radio. And the hero said, my God, I think they're dying. Ooh, 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 ooh. They're making these strange sounds. I mean, BBC was sensational. You do you, Saturday Night Theatre, you get Paul Temple and Dick Barton, and uh, you'd hear The Lost World, uh, and The War of the Worlds, so I've just said. All these different programmes are on, so it was an astonishing time for kind of radio. Of course, we had two cinemas. We had the Empire and the Picture House in Goldthorpe, and there they showed every week Flash Gordon in black and white with Buster Crabbe, who was marvellous. Uh, a brilliant Flash Gordon, very good series. And when they come out of the cinema, I'd run down the embankment and pretend to be Voltan, uh, the, the Hawkman. I never dreamt that one day I'd actually play him. So what was it like then when it actually came reality and well, they actually... Miraculous. Yeah. I went into the studio to meet Dino Laurenti. Apparently I've done more television and television serials than any other actor. They were told by Equity the other day. Wow. I think I've done 30 serials on television from The Three Musketeers to I, Claudius and things like that. Uh, and uh, so uh, at that time I was kind of an experienced actor. But I met Dino Laurenti. So I went to the studio and there was a painting of Voltan on the wall. I said, well, that's me. Uh, you cast me. We haven't cast you yet, but it's issue, isn't it? Yes. And it was a painting of me, but it wasn't. It was a painting of Voltan from the comic strip. I think that Flash Gordon, as always said, people say it's camp. It's not camp. Flash Gordon, as Ken Brenner would agree with me, uh, is, has got great style. Uh, it's, it's comic strip, brilliant music by Queen, wonderful direction, terrific cast. And it has you know, a unique quality, and it'll go on and on and on. I mean, I cannot go anywhere in the world. I'm, I'm halfway up Mount Everest, and I hear, will you please say the shepherds say, Gordon's alive. So I shout, Gordon's alive! Oak to Arena, Gordon's alive. I was heading for the North Pole uh, about five years ago, and uh, about 20 miles from the North Pole, a British expedition, a great submarine burst through the ice in front of us. 20 miles from the Pole, and it was Red October, a Typhoon submarine. And the Admiral got out, wherever it was, and he saw me there I was with our 11-strong expedition. Oh, it's him, please, say Gordon's alive. So I said, Gordon's alive, for the, for the Russian Admiral. So whenever you go, I have to say it, I mean, you know, I've said it for the Prime Minister, I've said it for the Queen, all kinds of things. They watch Flash Gordon all the time. Say, Great. The only thing that rivals it is Grampy Rabbit. Neil's Grampy Rabbit and Peppa Pig. Just think, Peppa Pig, we only get a small wage for it, by the way. Peppa Pig last year, I was told, made seven billion. Wow. More than any film ever. You, you know, I sit in my, I take them on expeditions, the pigs, don't I? I take them, and I lead the way. And I live in my little, uh, kind of lighthouse, protecting all the ships, shouting fog. 
and he teaches uh, he teaches them a love for adventure, all the pigs. Grumpy Rabbit's a wonderful storyteller and a wonderful explorer. Sweet. So, uh, life is very kind to me. You obviously discussed then a bit of your voice acting work. You have one of the most distinctive voices I've ever heard in my life. As soon as I oh, hear yeah, you I talk... I never think of myself that way, really. I'm, I'm yeah. delighted to hear it, my old son. Yeah, at any time I hear your voice on an advert or a film or a TV, instantly I know it's you, which is a credit to you. <laughs> Thank you. I do use it a lot. You're going to see me shortly, I think, um, on the Ladbrokes advert for the World Cup. Oh. I'm going to be riding a great Russian bear, grizzly bear, and I'll be kind of riding on its back. I, d- I don't know what they're doing about it. Uh, I start filming next week, but it's going to be on television. Are you a supporter? Uh, unfortunately, you probably won't like the team I support. It's Man United. No, uh, when, uh, well, this will interest you. When I was 10 years of age, in Goldthorpe, our school was called Highgate, and we just won the Totty Cup in 1948. We were 10 years of age, 9 years of age, and we won the Totty Cup in South Yorkshire. And there were no televisions, and Manchester United won the FA Cup. They beat Blackpool 4-2, Stanley Matthews as Blackpool. And we saw bits of it on, we heard it on the radio, of course. Very exciting Manchester United, very glamorous, with their claret shirts, as they were then. Yeah. And then we're, we're in our village, we won the Totty Cup, we're kicking our ball around our little school field, little tots we were, and this bus came and stopped. And these men got out. And they were playing their last match of the season. We couldn't believe it because there was no television. Oh, my God. We heard them on the radio. It's Manchester United. And I went up to their captain. You're Manchester United, are you? You're Manchester... Yes, that's right, yes. You just won the cup. Uh, we just won the Totty Cup. I said, can we, can we play? <laughs> yes, lad. <laughs> and they got the ball out. And we put our shirts on, black shirts, white shorts, and we played Manchester United, and we beat them 26-0. Wow. They let us win 26-0. And the United team, now this will impress you, was goalkeeper Crompton, a right-back Carey, left-back Ashton, right-half Anderson, centre-half Chilton, left-half Cockburn, outside-right Delaney, inside-right Molly, centre-forward Rowley, inside-left Pearson, outside-left Mitten. Now, how many actors would tell you that? How many pundits could tell you that? That is very impressive. I'm and we, we, they let us win 26 Oh, it was glorious. Uh, I had a soft spot for United ever since. When I was, uh, you know, uh, of course I did rep after drama school, the historic school. And I went to drama school uh, there. And then afterwards, Nottingham rep and uh, places like that. And then, of course, my first big breakthrough was Zed Cars. Uh, playing Francis Smith, a tough guy, tough Yorkshireman, and said, cars, that there was only BBC One and ITV. And we got 28, 30 million viewers a week. And it was 45 minutes live and five minutes filmed. Uh, so it's an astonishing uh, kind of thing to be in. And so it kind of lit up Britain. Uh, it was amazing with that Zed cartoon, which you keep hearing all the time, don't you, an Everton player. All the time. And Bellew fought the other night against David Hay, and he was held into the ring with Zed cars. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> Zed cars was a huge hit. Everybody wanted to be in it. It was 1961-62. And everybody, just everyone wanted to be in it. Film stars, everybody. The wonderful scripts, wonderful. It was a gigantic, you couldn't walk anywhere in Britain. Uh, as I said, it was an easy one, and ITV, and that was it, uh, on television. 
amazing days. I mean, it was a, we had great writers and so forth. And the BBC looked after me, and as soon as that cars, uh, when I left it after two years, I didn't want to stay it more than two years, I, they immediately put me in the Three Musketeers as Portos for Jeremy Brett. And I went on to films and things and that, so I've, I've always had lots of help. And it doesn't matter how talented we are, we all need help, don't we? We always need good Samaritans. And I've always been looked after, and I'm very grateful for that. I was doing a bit of research into your um, career and everything, and I was reading about Prince of Thieves. Now, is it true that you were nearly killed while you were filming this film? Well, it is, actually. ridiculous, isn't it? I don't know why I had a huge charge, and of course I'm... I, I, I think actors should be experts on horseback, and they should be expert swordsmen. I'm a, as you know, a black belt judo, yeah. and uh, from my national service days and all that. And I ride, you know, the, the ridden since I was a kid on wild ponies and God knows what. But it was on a drawbridge, and that sawdust on it was wet, peat. And this is a charger of 17 hands, and the fucking poor horse couldn't keep its feet. It couldn't keep its feet. And crashed down twice right on top of me. You know, and that's where you kind of clear all the bloody shit off, off the, the drawbridge. Get rid of all this peat, because he can't, he can't, when he comes onto the drawbridge, he can't, he keeps slipping everywhere. The poor horse can't stand still. So they did eventually. But I hit the deck about five times before they, I think it's the amount of time, that's five times the horse has landed on top of me. Let's get rid of the peat. I don't know why they were being so thick about it. I must have. It's interesting in that, that, um, when I was there filming my first day, Kevin Cosner was by my side, came up and said hello. And he brought me for the next three days, a bit of scrambled every morning, a coffee. He was always looking after me. And it was interesting because I almost played Little John, but I wasn't free. So they said, we've got to have you in it. We'll have you as Kevin's father. You know, that's why I don't really look like him. But it doesn't matter about we want you as the father. We've got to have you in it. No, I couldn't do Little John. Anyway, the guy playing Little John, one day I went into the studio and he said, Christ, Kevin Cosner's been bloody awful to me. I said, really, why? He said, Nick Brimble, this actor was. I said, but he's a nice guy. Ah, but in the first third of the script, you and he are not friends, are you? He said, no. He's acting it out. Once you become friends, we'll be nice to you. And of course, that did happen. But with me as his father, he gave me copies and he, looked, he, he became my servant. It was amazing. People were astonished. It's because he needed it to play the part. He treated me as his father. It was fascinating. He, he, so he acts by the method. That's a method acting on a whole new level, that is. Yeah, that, yeah. He used to bring me my breakfast and everything. Hello, Brian. <laughs> I was his father and he needed it for the part. So again, I was also reading that you were a big fan of Doctor Who, uh, especially in the 80s, is that correct? Yes, well, when I left Z-Cars, uh, when I left Z-Cars, the BBC actually offered me Doctor Who. I haven't told anybody. Uh, uh, it was a black and white version at the time, and uh, the, the, the William Hartnell was leaving, got old, and Andrew Osborne took me for water. I went to read Doctor Who, and I said, well, I'm very young, I'm only, you know, I was only 26, now, what do make a very young Doctor Who, Brian? You've got a big following on Z-Cars. I said, and of course I'd done rep and everything else in the classics, and I said, and how would you play him, Brian? I said, well, I'd want to play him Oriental. What? Like Charlie Chan. His name is not Doctor Smith, is it? It's Doctor Who. 
Miss Easton. Doctor Who's name, Miss Easton. It's very oriental. Yeah. And that frightened the bloody life out of them, sir. And they offered me the Three Musketeers instead. I think Doctor Who's a wonderful series. There have been some lovely doctors. They're all good in their own way. I mean, Tom Baker's my favourite. And what do you think now that we're now going to get the first female Doctor? Well, I think that's great. It's my, uh, you know, I've always liked women. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm, you, it's not, I'm sure it's not the case with you. But I would say at least 60-70% of men have always bored the arse off me. Uh, they're always macho and they're always full of their own importance. And I always find that most men don't like women. They don't like them. They want to go to bed with them, but they don't like them. But I've always liked women. And whatever I've learned in life is mainly through women. They've been my greatest influence. Oh, some men as well, you know. But um, there we are. So I think it'd be marvellous having a, a young woman play Doctor Who. I think it's marvellous. And one of the films that was quite iconic, which I was quite surprised when I saw your name, was when you were involved in Star Wars Episode One as the voice work. <laughs> that scale of film, how was that being involved in that? Because that's, that's a big film. Well, I mean, the extraordinary thing is that, of course, particularly after the first three films, uh, ending on The Returning the Jedi, everybody wanted to be in Star Wars. I mean, it was kind of... A, People just ached, even if it was two lines, you know. Look at Sandra Jackson, he begged to be in it, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, of course, I just finished doing some part of my space training, uh, you know, because uh, I've done 800 hours in Moscow and uh, over the past two years, and, and then on Reunion Island with NASA. Uh, so my love of space and knowledge of space, and I've done about 10 different space things on television, Space 1999, Into Infinity, and all kinds of things. I've done a lot of space, and of course, Flash Gordon. And anyway, here, you can imagine, he and I, uh, um, the, the director of Star Wars, oh, my mind's racing. Um, George Lucas. Uh, George, I mean, George and I got a like a really house on fire. We just got a, we met, we went for walks, and he said, I'm doing the new one, and it hasn't been done for 13, 16 years, whatever it is, uh, The Phantom Menace. I said, tricky to continue. Yes, it is, but it is. He said, but your personality is just a bit too strong for a Jedi. I, but I've got to have you in it. So I bet Boss Nass. Of course, in the final analysis, when the script kept coming through to me, on fax machines everywhere, uh, with a strange language, almost Jamaican it was, I realise, of course, he's the hero of the film. His, his army of Gungans wins the day <laughs> with, with the young lad. You know, and he's a hero. But strange, uh, a reptilian character, 20 or 30 feet high, uh, with terrific dialogue. Of course, in the end, in the end, uh, you know, a marvellous scene when I'm sitting way up on that rock. And there's the Queen... And there's Arthur Peter, and there's all the Jedi, Quigon uh, and all of them, and everyone, and they're all begging me to save them. It's amazing. Christ me. And I'm sat up there, and the Queen is saying, please, we beg of you, please, Boss Nas, please supply us with your army. It's, you know, it's going to be awful. There's going to be a terrible war. We need your help and strength. And I remember that, and George, because he very rarely directed, you know, you get on with it, he said, Brian, 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 I want you to do something fucking marvellous. Do something fucking marvellous, Brian. 
and she finished. And I, I remember going, um, please, boss, Nash, she said. And I went, this I like a dish. Maybe we can be friends. I did this extraordinary thing with my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> and like a George, when you're mad bastard, it's perfect. This is exactly what we want. And he made them all laugh and jump up in the air. And he said, that's it, because he said, this is the big moment now before the battle. And you brought it about. And he phoned me up about 10 weeks later and said, Brian, that special thing you do, it's cost us about 375,000 in special effects. That's amazing. <laughs> to match the special effects to your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> but then it, it surely was that he, um, at uh, the end of it all had been finished, the film had been finished, and he just rang me up and said, well, could you come down to London? Come in the studio, Brian. And there I was, and there was his wife and children having a cake to celebrate they'd finished the film. But we had one word to record to end the film. And there was all the staff and everybody. And he said, I'm giving you the last word of the film. Do you know what the last word is? I'm rattling my brain, but I can't think. They give me the globe of peace. They give me this, the Queen gives me at the end this huge globe in thanks, and I hold it up. It's the last shot of the film, about 30 feet high I stand as this giant, and I hold this globe that she gives me, and I shout, Peace! Nice. And that's the end of the film. That's a pretty good I mean, thing, I mean, isn't it? I mean, you couldn't wish for anything better. But out of interest, you know, I saw them all, all the films, and, and George and I, we got on marvellous, because we both love space so much. When they were doing The Return of the Jedi, I was doing Henry V with Ken Branagh, which he eventually made a film, as the Duke of Exeter, the, the great powerful man in armour, who leads the British army in Henry V. And the French king is an old French king. And a man called Sebastian Shaw was playing the old French king, a man of about 87. And I came down one evening for the evening show, rather like it is now. I said, well, Sebastian, I'm, like, oh, I'm fine. I, I, I had a strange time. I was in a studio yesterday. Where are you? Because he's quite old. Yes, and he was there with his wife. I've been... I've been playing a part, um, what is it, Doug? I, I was dressed all in black, and I had a black helmet on, and the young actor unscrewed it from my head. I, I was, what was the name of the character, darling? Darth Vader. <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> what are you doing? I said, the whole of the acting profession Everybody throughout the world wants to be the, are waiting for that helmet to fucking come off, and they all want to be the face of Darth Vader. And you didn't fucking realise? <laughs> and you didn't. I saw the fucking famous part in filmic history, Darth Vader. I mean, it's got to be. I am your father. I mean, it's got to be the most famous part ever. Ever. I run it close as Voltaire and Blythe Gordon, but that's the fucking part of the over the past thousand years, the best And he wasn't fucking aware of it. <laughs> and when you see it, I said, George, I told him that George Rory loves it, no, Brian, he said, I said, why is it where I, I had to, um, 
I wanted somebody who was very old and very, very gentle and slightly oriental. And he was, he did it beautifully. And that Sebastian Shaw wasn't aware of the importance of Darth Vader. Wasn't aware of <laughs> He couldn't even remember the fucking character. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> Anyone would give their right leg to be in that part. Absolutely. I couldn't look at <laughs> Lovely man. He was a star of the 1940s, Sebastian. He was yeah. Black and white movie star. Very glamorous. But, uh, there we are, nice man. Black and good actor. When I do a lot of interviews with actors and actresses, I always find it quite fascinating if they ever watch their work back. I speak to some big actors that have never watched their performance, they just don't. What are you? Are you on the fence? Or I don't believe them. Don't believe them. Don't. They're lying. <laughs> it's a false modesty. Bollocks. <laughs> All actors are incredibly vain. Of course, uh, and, and you can go too far with acting. Acting is pretending. It's a great, great art. I mean, Richard Bryan, before he died, said, Christ, Bryan, you're going on stage and screening everywhere, talking about all your different adventures through the lost world, to your, your, your moon training and your space training, and, and climbing Everest and all these fucking things, but a wonderful expedition to a lost world, uh, North Pole, South Pole, God knows, is it? And you never talk, you never praise actors. I said, well, no, I, would you say something? So I did, I remember on television somewhere, saying, well, and so I'll say it now that in actual fact, I think that acting, and I can be very objective about it because I'm an explorer as well, acting is the hardest of all the arts. It's the toughest because in opera, and I can sing operatically, in opera, um, you can say I've got a cold. Well, my voice is not quite right. I've got a, I've had a cold all week. And in ballet, you can say, well, I've just, my ligaments give me trouble. My hamstring's a bit stiff. But in acting, your body, your eyes, your face, your voice, your imagination, your heart, your soul is judged. And 90% of the time you're shot down. And you've got to have the courage to next day go back on stage or go back in front of the camera. It requires great strength. But I said to Richard, but nevertheless, Richard, and I said to an audience, that Hamlet says, acting is holding up the mirror up to nature holding up the mirror up to life. But climbing Mount Everest is life. And there's a huge difference. So at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how marvelous the actor and how marvelous the work he does, and I talked to Ken Brenner about it, and he roars in laughter, they, we are acting. We're pretending. Yeah. And you know, says, oh, I lived the part, and I went to him, and I couldn't get rid of the part. Well, fucking get rid of it, you idiot. Yeah. You're pretending with your fucking... When you go uh, away from the studio, don't fucking inflict it on other people. Is that silly? It's vain. Of course, as I said, actors are immensely brave. And, and uh, you know, uh, I, I've never known many actors. I, I know Branner. I've known Branner for 30 years. We have a father-son relationship. But I'm the son. He's the father. He's an old prick compared to me. Uh, but I am terribly young. But my most of my friends are explorers. And I've just been reading that you've got a new book coming out, uh, Panther yes, in My Kitchen. I've seven books now into my talents. Uh, and the latest one really is about, you know, my involvement from early on, from being a child with animals. Yeah. Because I do a lot for the World Wide Life. I, I was part of leading the project to get Annie, the elephant, its home. And I work on gorillas and bears and God knows what. 
I do a great deal for the born free and all these different things. And so I, but in the 60s, I bought, bought this house in Richmond and I was in Zed Cars for a few thousand quid. It was a huge back garden called Clarence House. And a great, one of the great, Bosworth, one of the great um, naturalists said, Brian, we can get lots of cages, fill them with wonderful plants, make them beautiful and friendly, and we can gather all the wild animals all over Britain that people had bought. You see, in those days, in the 60s, you could buy a fucking elephant from Harrods. Rhinoceros. <laughs> it was terrible. It's mental. And we were not... <laughs> So all over the country, people have mountain lions. That's why you keep hearing about them in the country, because they've been bred and they've been fucking released. I mean, the countryside, there's a black pack also. People have had them and released them, because they can't, they have them as babies, and they, get, they can't handle the adult. But anyway, we worked on rescuing animals. We sent them back to the ocelots, margays, jungle cats, leopards, etc. Now, so we, 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 we'd rescue them, uh, and then the Minister of Agriculture and Fisheries and Bosworth and me would send them back to the country of origin. Now, my father and I, was, we, we, we had a great love of animals in Britain. I mean, you know, but, uh, I mean, David Attenborough up to, up to the 60s was doing Zoo Quest to Paraguay and bringing animals back to Britain. We got, we, we all got educated, we suddenly realized that putting animals in cages is not on, you know. It was just not on. Uh, and, and suddenly, so it all changed. But then we were brought up on circuses in the village in Yorkshire. There were boys, saw some lions for the first time. Johnny Weasmer films, Tarzan. We all wanted a fucking lion. Now, when I was a little boy, my dad took me to see Jungle Book. Not these Jungle Books you see now are fine, no better than fine. But Alexander Corder, if you get a chance, get it, get it with Mowgli played by Sabu and Orson Welles' acting company and the cast, fantastic, wonderful jungles, wonderful, Shatan is amazing. And uh, the Black Panther um, uh, in it uh, is it, it's simply sensational. Uh, I, the, the whole film is full of the most wonderful animals, a wonderful storyline, wonderful jungles and temples. That's in the 60s. Alexander Corder, and I went to see it, and I was gobsmacked. I was seven years of age, I nearly fainted. Um, Bagheera, the Black Panther. And anyway, when I was at Clarence House in the 60s after Zedkar time, rescuing these animals, my father came down. He was painting one of the rooms. I said, Dad, I owe you a debt of gratitude about wild animals. Come into the kitchen. And there was this huge kitchen, big oak table. And he opened the door and took his, his, took his breath away. And there on the table was a great, big, black panther. No way. Now that's my book, Panther in the Kitchen. And a man called Nyoka in control of it. A female called Carly. And he was quite tame. And I rubbed his belly. And I got a brush on his belly. And I had absolutely marvellous green eyes. And it was Bagheera, my dad. Ah, oh, Brian. I just want to say thank you, Dad, for introducing me to a new world, to wild animals. And all these animals are sent back to the country of origin. But, uh, you know, in the early days, we, we, we were, you know, we went to zoos, we went to the, the circuses. We had to educate, we're still educating ourselves. People say to me, Brian, uh, 
we hear you're going to go on a Yeti expedition. I said, yes, I've got four or five different areas of the Earth where they possibly exist. But I said, if I ever came across them, I wouldn't tell anyone where they are. Because they put the fucking creature in a cage. Yeah. And so forth. So we're still, uh, but we're, we're, you know, now circuses are collapsing all over the world now with wild animals, not having them. And we've been slow, actually, in Britain, but we're coming around for an animal-loving country. And we're going to win today. I just feel mankind's going to do all right. And the animals are going to do all right. There's great people doing great work. And we've got to just keep an eye on these elephants. And an elephant killed every 56 seconds. You can't conceive it. What they want to shoot elephants for? We don't want to shoot and, and get photographed alongside them. It's a, it's a anyway, fucked up man. The main thing is that we are the guardian of this planet. We have to look after them. And we are doing We are doing We're going to make it. Mankind will make it. I bloody hope so. <laughs> <laughs> so this book is all about your love for animals and what you've done in your time and growing up with animals and all this work you do for charities. It's a good insight to that, is it? Yes, it's all about that. It's all about, with, with stories about, you know, um, going for a walk with, um, with, with George. Uh, and and, and, and the, uh, uh, I think people have always said that they met Kubrick. <laughs> When I was in Chobham, when I lived with my, with all my domestic animals, one day I was asked to go and meet Kubrick out in the countryside. He's doing Barry Lyndon. And he and I went for an hour and a half to two hours walk. He stopped the film. I was amazed. Come on, let's go for a walk, Brian. And we talked about space and animals and adventure. And everybody had to wait. There were fucking about five or six, seven thousand people, a fucking army. And, and we went for a fucking walk and sat in the grass and talked. And I put that interview in because people have always said they've interviewed him, and they haven't. And I was able to kind of talk to him about his films and about using cameras, that, lenses that NASA use for space, and talk about different the Russian films and, the, and what he'd learned in Russian. I knew the Russian films very well. And we got a mountain. We talked about that and adventure and climbing and God knows what. Right at the end of it all, he took me back to his caravan, and he asked me about boxing. He said boxing was the greatest passion in his life. Well, of course, I was brought up on boxing. And tell me about boxing. So I did. Have you ever been in a red corner, I said to him? Have you ever been in a blue corner? No, Brian. I thought about Jack Dempsey, the great Manasseh Moore, and Rocky Marciano, never defeated heavyweight. Uh, Henry Cooper, uh, Muhammad Ali. And uh, I once had lunch with Ali, Joe Lewis, Joe Frazier, Joe Wilcock, Jack Dempsey, Rocky Marciano, the whole lot. At Dempsey's restaurant, which is mentioned in God, uh, um, Godfather, the first Godfather, Dempsey's restaurant, and Jack Dempsey was there, and I was in that restaurant with all these top act, uh, top boxers, and uh, they all said, without, I said, who is the best amongst you all throughout history? Oh, without question. Muhammad Ali said, of course, he was Cassius Clay at the time, the best by far was Rocky Marciano. He never got beat. We all got beat. He never got beat. Nobody could beat him. So Rocky Marciano was voted the greatest heavyweight of all time by these top wonderful uh, boxers. And he, of course he was there. <laughs> he was very shy. Considering he was a monster in the ring, a terrifying puncher. He could punch non-stop for 500 rounds, apparently. The fittest ever. Uh, and it was wonderful to be with them all. And Because then when I realized that Kubrick, 
I said, that's why you brought me along. She said, I want to do a boxing film, Brian. Uh, it's my biggest love in life is boxing. And I want you to be part of it. So that's why I'm, he, he wanted to see me. But he stopped all the filming. And Barry Lyndon, sheep and officers and army. And they went off for Barry Walk. Strange man with black hair, black eyes, white face. Very rarely smiled. And you don't smile much, no, no, no. Shall I tickle you? <laughs> That's all right, Brian. I can smile, can okay. you? <laughs> extraordinary person. Sounds it's fascinating. It's man I've ever met. Wow. Have you, but I do the whole interview in this book. So, you know, it, this happened while I'm keeping animals and looking up with my wife, you know what I mean? And suddenly over the garden fence is his top assistant saying, I beg of you to please come along and meet him. Fucking hell, what for? And, um... So I developed this strange relationship with him. Uh, people, because it's history, you know. It's the same one of my books. I have a, a long relationship with Catherine Hepburn from a, a Greek film called Trojan Women. Michael Takianis, who directed Zorba, the Greek director, it was Catherine Hepburn, uh, Vanessa Redgrave, Genevieve Bourgeois, and Irene Pappas. And I was reading Man to them. It's a film that's not seen Trojan Women, an art film. Uh, but uh, had the same effect on me. We had a tremendous time together. I worked with her for 15 weeks on the film. Uh, and um, it was interesting meeting him. But he, I mean, his knowledge is astonishing. His knowledge was, you know, amazing. And, and of course, we had this nearly two hours together, and I left, and I never fucking saw him again. That was I never it. Heard or from him, and I never saw him again. <laughs> At least you got that time with him, which many people would be so it. jealous and I put of. Every word of it in, so it's all, and it's, it's historical. So when you read the book, you come to that bit, and it's very comical. You read because there's a lot of comedy in it as well. I'm looking forward to it. It sounds exciting. Yeah, yeah. So looking back, is that your kind of favourite memory of your career, or is there something that tops oh, it? No, 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 no. I don't suppose I do have a favourite one. I am. Um... What are you most proud of? Well. You see, it's a film that really wasn't seen. I've talked about Trojan Women. I'd been in Z Towers, and, and, you know, I was on the front of every magazine in the country of Sandy Smith. Even the Queen has her favourite character. While she was pregnant, oh, he keeps me alive with humour, and he's so powerful. Um, so I sat Smith for two and a half years, and the BBC looked after me. And I, so, I suddenly had not done any films, and I'd just then done The Three Musketeers, which was a big success for me as Portos, as Jeremy Brett, as D'Artagnan. And suddenly they were doing Trojan Women. Now, Michael, directed by Michael Cacchiani's Trojan Women, it's going to bore people shitless. Euripides as Trojan Women. Now, nobody's going to go and see that. But they were making a film of it. Cacchiani's had directed Zorba the Greek, and won all the Oscars. Anthony Quinn had got an Oscar. He's got an Oscar. It's a great film. Zorba the Greek. People were dancing to the music all over London all the time. Uh, Zorba's music, uh, Zorba's dance, it was everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. And it, and it won everything, every bloody award going, about five Oscars. And Kakianis was a genius, but rather like Kubik. And he was in London, and he came to cast Trojan women. It is considered by the profession as the greatest play ever written, Euripides. And it's the end of the Trojan War. 
and the women are being herded onto ships to be sold into slavery by the Greeks. Their men are all dead. The Trojans are all dead. Hector's dead. And the man in charge of all this is Talphibius. And he existed. He was a great general. And he has to marshal all these women, thousands of them, onto ships and try and comfort them. He had to get a man, powerful man with a heart. He existed. And he'd argue with Ulysses. He'd argue with Agamemnon and fucking tell him off. Anyway, they had got Catherine Hepburn as Hecuba, Jeanne Bourgeon, who was out of a thousand days, she was then Cassandra, uh, Irene Pappas was Helen of Troy, and uh, Vanessa Redgrave was Andromeda. A fucking Redgrave at her best with blonde hair. Young Pappas as Helen of Troy, fucking Tequila in the guns of Navarone. This wonderful Greek. And Tatiana's directing it. And they got all the women, they got the locations and the lot. And they came to London and to cast Talphibius. And he, Gatianis saw Robert Shaw, Sean Connery, Robert Shaw, uh, Laurence Olivier, every fucker you can think of. And he turned them all down. And he said, they can't do it, they can't do it, they can't do it, they're too English. And it's a terrible stage, you know, all the top, great top actors, and they'd, they'd go and read for him, and he insisted they read for him, and he'd fucking throw them out. And Maud Spector said, oh, I've, you know, it was awful, I'd had enough of this. He said, right, I'm going to get my car, I cast it in Europe, I've got the four women and all, and the thousands of other women, I don't need a fucking English actor. And uh, he's a genius. And anybody else who's <laughs> not really, uh, in a gymnasium just round the corner, a man called Brian Blessed, you did, I don't know, a wonderful name. Yes, he's not done any films, he's just on television, he's very big on television. But he's only round the corner, he, just before you get your car, you can just listen to him. Okay. So I came out of the gym, pouring the fucking sweat in a fucking tracksuit. In Hill Street, opposite where the Beatles were. So I came in there, uh, and uh, uh, there he was waiting for me. And he said, look, please, uh, sit it down, sit it down, sit it down. Uh, I'm not saying the greatest moment of my life, I'm just saying this was, for me, yeah. the most amazing experience of my life, artistically. And he said, sit in front of me. Look, I've had all these English actors do this. I only want you to read three lines. And if you make them English, I'll throw that fucking table at you. If you give it an English expression. Right, I, he said, I've just had that natural Davenport do it, and the lines are quite simply. The, hear the lines, Brian. You, you're talking to Hecuba, uh, Captain Hepburn, as uh, Chalcibius, and you say, you go with Odysseus. His wife's a good, wise woman, so they say. That's what you say. Well, I'll give you a read. I've just had Nigel Davenport do it for me, right? He came in and said, you go with the Decius. His wife's a good, wise woman, so they say. If you do that English like that, I'll go insane. And they've all done it. Lawrence Olivier's done it, Robert Shaw's done it, they've all done it, all the top actors have done it. Top film stars, everybody. Robert Moore, everybody, they're all, Kenneth Moore, all of them. And I remembered from my studies the ancient Greeks. They speak, when the ancient Greeks, from Homer to everything, 
The ancient Greeks, at the time of the Iliad and the time of Ulysses, had a bareness of speech. Spartan. So instead of saying a, 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 a colored mountain or a, a wonderful varied mountain, they would say a big mountain, a small mountain, a white mountain, a black mountain. They didn't color anything. They spoke the truth bang on. I remember that, that they were kind of naked in expression, black and white. So this is how I did it. I looked at Kakyanus and I said, you go with Odysseus. His wife's a good wise woman, so they say. Say it again. You go with Odysseus. His wife's a good wise woman, so they say. So they do fucking say. You don't embroider it. Say, sit down. Uh, I finished my coffee. I'm, I'm getting on my cup. I think I'm Joseph Chaptel, the producer. Uh, the Michael, the car's outside. Yes, 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 yes. Who is this? Uh, his name is Brian Blessed. He's playing Chalphibius. I fucking walked out of there. Absolutely shaking with excitement. That meant I had 20 scenes with Catherine Hepburn. Dream come true. Yeah. I, I mean, it's a film that's very rarely seen. Uh, but it's a great um, classical film. It's not fucking the Toy Story. You know what I mean? It's, it's yeah. A, uh, but some of the acting in it is unbelievable. But Kaki Anna's direction, and, and and she taught me so much as well, was amazing. Anyway, I thought me if I get that off, love, I better, I better get, uh, is there anything else you'd like to hear from me, my old son? That's absolutely everything. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Well, I'm sorry that I've gone on a bit. I do believe, you know, that uh, as mankind we're going to make it. You'll say to me, Brian, isn't it dangerous going up Mount Everest? Isn't it dangerous going to the South Pole, etc.? I think the greatest danger in life is not taking the adventure. There are Everest everywhere. It can be, you know, your garden shed, your greenhouse. It can, you've got to take another step in your Zimmer frame. I believe in people. I believe we're going to make it. And I, I, I believe that nature doesn't cheat. Talking to you, we've all got something that nobody else has got. And you've got to be allowed to bring it out to fulfill your dreams. And don't let the bastards grind you down. That's advice, I think, that is valid for anyone that's listening right now. So I hope that helps. Fucking marvellous interview. I've not talked like that for years. Thank you, you sir. Give me a marvellous interview. Thank you. So there it is. There's my interview with me and Brian Blessed. And as I said at the start today, this guy can talk, but I didn't want to chop and edit it all out because all of the stuff he told me and all the stuff he discussed, I think is gold. So I kept it all in there. I absolutely love his stuff about Doctor Who. I absolutely adored his stories about working with George Lucas and Star Wars. What a great guest. So much fun. And hopefully a guest I can get back in a year or two where we can talk more about other stuff that he's done since. Because I don't think he's going anywhere. He's so passionate about everything he does. And he really is one of the best actors in the business. So thank you, Brian, for joining me. Also, everyone, if you've enjoyed the episode, I've noticed that a lot of new listeners are jumping on board. I have got another 36 episodes sitting on iTunes or Spotify or Podomatic. Jump on markandme.com and they're all on there. You've got guests like Jason Muse, Corey Feldman, Tommy Wiseau, Sir Anthony Hopkins, Kevin Smith. There's hundreds of people on there. Napoleon Dynamite himself, John Hedder. They're all on there and they're all free. But as always, with all podcasts, there's running costs of putting them on the server. The space I needed for the Mads Mixon episode had to be doubled, so I had to pay quite a bit of money to get that. 
but I've been able to have that support from my Patreon and I'm really grateful. So if you do want to support the podcast, it costs less than a Mars bar. It's about 60p if you want to donate. And that really does help and goes a long way for me being able to travel, do more interviews, get better equipment. And it all helps in me giving basically you more content, which results in more episodes. So it's a win-win. Thank you everyone for listening today. I'm going to say now it won't be a two-week wait because my other podcast, Skip to the End, is having a week off. But I don't take weeks off, so I'm going to get another episode of Mark and Me done, and it won't be long until you're listening to that. So stay tuned, and thank you again for all your support, and I'll speak to you all again soon. I'm sorry.